Welcome back to the Future of Feeling podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Ugalik phillips and I'm bringing you interviews with some great minds helping build empathy in our tech-obsessed world. This is the last episode in this first season of the podcast, and it's the one where I make my confession. I am not a perfectly empathetic human. I mean, no one is, but you'd be surprised how often people expect me to be all empathy all the time after writing a book and making a podcast about it. Today's interview is with Jessica Toe, co-founder of an app called Huckleberry. It's a tool for tracking baby things, sleep, feeding, diapers, etc. I tried it when my daughter was a newborn, and it drove me a little nuts. I wrote about this experience for the online publication Insider, and my editor there asked me to name the app, so I did. Then I heard from a public relations person who works for the company, and my heart stopped. I hadn't said anything mean about Huckleberry, I just hadn't said anything nice about it either. Jessica Toe, Huckleberry's co-founder, wanted to talk to me because empathy for users is actually really foundational to her and the company. She wanted to know what they could do better. So we had a conversation and I recorded it for you. Here it is. And thanks, Jessica, for, for your flexibility. I'm um, Oh, no problem. Just last minute work stuff yesterday, trying to do this podcast thing on the side and, you know, just making it all work yeah. <laughs> the best that I can. Yeah. Doing the hustle. No problem. Exactly. Yeah. Totally get it. <laughs> well, thank you so much um, for joining and being willing to answer some questions about tech and empathy. Um, and I yeah. think um, a good place to start is really just how we became connected. Um, so I uh, <laughs> wrote an article about my use of baby tracking apps. Um, and it was one of those situations where, you know, the the writer writes the thing and then the editor wants more details. And so I mentioned that I used Huckleberry, um, which is your app. And I'll let you talk about that um, in, in, in just a second. Um, and so my experience, you know, I'm, I kind of knew going in and learned that I, that my hunch was right, that I'm not the kind of person who maybe needs to use a baby tracking app. Um, and that was kind of what I wrote about, about ways that it can be, um, kind of tricky for people who are prone to, you know, obsessively checking things or have social media, um, addiction and things like that. Um, but then, um, uh, Christy from Huckleberry, um, or who, who works with you reached out, um, to, you know, share some info about some of the thought that you put into creating the app so that it would be a positive place. And I, I just really liked that. I really liked the way that that conversation started. I, and I, I happened to have written this whole book about, um, empathetic technology or sort of empathetic mm. creation of technology. And turns out that that's something that you were thinking about um, in your work. And so yeah. I thought, why not have you come chat about it? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, when we reached out, it was not at all like, uh, Hey, how, why did you mention this kind of thing? It was really because we, we really care about the people using our app. And I, I, wanted to get more insight into, um, you know, why you felt that way, because it's the opposite of what we're trying to do and mm. wanting to be able to have a further discussion as well. Perfect. So I'm, gl I'm, I'm really so glad. glad that you <laughs> responded. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, yeah, so tell us are. a little bit about you and about Huckleberry. What is it and yes. why does it exist and what is your goal? <laughs> yes. So at Huckleberry, our goal is to make a good good night's sleep, good day sleep possible for every family. And um, the inspiration for this was definitely from personal experience. So I have three kids now, but my son woke up every two to three hours for 20 months. And, you know, it's a good thing kids are so cute because they force you to do superhuman things that you would not have thought possible otherwise. And, um, you know, it, it wasn't for lack of trying. I mean, I I you know, I wasn't opposed to this whole sleep training thing. I, I tried that. It, didn't, it wasn't working like the book said it would. spoke with the pediatrician, nurse practitioner, different people, and it just wasn't coming together. And so with my background um, in the data and engineering side, um, undergrad, I did a triple major in electrical engineering, computer science, math, and statistics at Berkeley, and I was working in software. So, so my approach wow. was to see if I could data science my way out of it. Like that's the angle I I took. Let's not rush through that because triple, you know, triple majoring and doing all that work—that's really impressive. That's amazing. I mean, that's that's not surprising at all. Then that you know, when you had a problem, you you knew how to approach it. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, you know, a different it's a different angle from uh how it's been approached before. And so I started solving my own problem and then realizing, well, lots of other people have this issue and started to try it out with other people because but what we found was that um, you know, the data alone was was very interesting, but it wasn't on its own enough to make a difference for for most people, it was really when pairing it up with the pediatric expertise when the magic really started to happen. And um, and then what we also realized was what people really loved was like the tell me what to do part. <laughs> it's like, okay, yes, I know my kid is waking up all the time, but like what exactly do I do? What time? You know, make it easy for me because I don't want to think necessarily right now. That's a great because point. It, that yeah. time of life when you have a baby that's not sleeping, I mean, obviously, that's the whole point, like you're struggling. But I think in, in any kind of mm-hmm. data gathering situation, people don't really necessarily know what to do with the information they gather. Like I'm thinking about even if right. you, you know, send away for your 23andMe thing and now you have this mm. genetic information and you're like, what do I, yes. but what do I do with this? Yes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So there needs to be, the closed loop then of, okay, well, what what do I do based off of what happened in the past? So like in statistics, it's called like Bayesian statistics. Like based on what happened in the past, this is probably what's going to happen now or in the future. And so that's what, what we do. Um, like we try to focus what we create around three Cs. We feel that parents want these three things. They want confidence that they're doing the right thing. They want a little bit more a sense of control in a, a time that is so chaotic and they want comfort as well. Like just to I, I feel like every parent has like a little bit of uh insecurity that they don't want to mess it all up. <laughs> and I, mm-hmm. I feel like that's even where, you know, all the mommy shamers come from. It's like it's a sense of insecurity that if someone else is doing something different, then maybe it means I'm doing something wrong. When we design things, you know, some of the things that we purposely didn't do was, um, which is very common in uh, consumer apps, is to do like a winning streak. Like, congratulations, you, you know, you tracked for 
um, 35 days, keep it going so you don't lose this streak kind of thing. From our perspective, like we never do something like that because if somebody wants to take a break, they should totally take a break. Sometimes people will contact us about, um, you know, how is it going to work? We're traveling is, you know, like how's the time difference work? And, and honestly, like we tell people, if you're traveling, just enjoy it. <laughs> Don't worry <laughs> about when, whether, you know, when your kid is sleeping, <laughs> like just assume it's going to be kind of bad. And then if it's a little bit good, then you'll feel great about it versus trying to control yeah. all of that. We just took our first, so my daughter is almost eight months old and we just took our first little, well, we actually took a trip when she was about five months old, but at that time she was still such a baby that she just kind of went with the flow. Now yeah. that she's almost eight months old and she's starting to crawl and she gets bored easily, it was a totally different situation yeah. and her sleep was definitely disrupted, but we did go into it thinking like, we're not, we're not going to have any, we're going to have very low expectations. And then it just took a day or yes. two once we got home for it to straighten out. But, but, but yes. I have to say that I did notice that when I was, so a little bit, you know, just for folks listening to understand. So I, you know, I had my baby, I was given these sheets um, to, to track like on paper, you know, when she was eating and when she was sleeping. Um, and I kind of liked that, but it's kind of hard, you know, to keep track of paper. We do everything on our phones. And so I was looking for an app to use and I definitely gravitated toward Huckleberry because it wasn't really gamified. And I did notice that there were, you know, these pediatrician backed things. And, you know, I, I should also explain a little bit more about uh, what else Huckleberry does. So, so for newborns, it starts off as a baby tracker, just to remember, like, I don't remember when I last fed or changed a diaper. And so it's kind of there to be, like, the parent's second brain to keep track of it all. But um, starting from two months and up, we have something called Sweet Spot, where it can predict th that magic window of when a child will reach this tired, not overtired stage. And then we also have something um, in addition to that where people can get a full analysis and sleep plan. Uh, done for them by a sleep consultant. Um, and so, but I, I think the part that is probably like the most addictive part, I would say, not intentionally, but hopefully for good reasons, is sweet spot because it helps people know when something is coming. Kind of mm -hmm. like, you know, when you call Uber or Lyft, uh, you can see when your car is coming. Um, and it's a similar kind of feeling where you know, oh, okay, my kid's going to need to sleep at 1.30. we got time. We can go to the store. We can come back. It's all good kind of thing. So we, we would, you know, we do these analysis and sleep plans for people. And the majority, and it, it always is the case, is people looking to improve the night sleep. But um, when the pandemic hit, and then all these people were at home. They were now in charge of their child's naps. Um, and so the percent of people looking for nap help increased by 30%. Because it's like, oh, shoot, like, I got to work from home. We have to figure this out. And so we see a lot of people now using uh, the tracking and sweet spots just to help them even know like, how, it, how their child's sleep is going to either interfere or help or, or they can work around their uh, meeting schedule. Yeah, that was something that I was I always wondered about with just any kind of tracking is once the kid goes to daycare, it's kind of like, how mm. much control do you really have? <laughs> you know, do you, 
Um, mm-hmm. And then how do you try to continue what happens at daycare, like on the weekends or other times? Yeah, yeah. So that's the beauty of um, how we designed it, which is it, we we make it work with incomplete data also. So so it's like if you stop tracking for a while or maybe it's only on weekends, um, it will still work for you. So it still takes like whatever information it has on your child and then creates predictions based off of that. That's another area where we wanted to make sure we always think about, okay, making sure that it can still work without requiring that everything is totally complete. And if you don't track something, then it's going to mess everything up because that's stress nobody needs, especially as a parent. So, okay. So I, so I can point to a lot of places now where I can see, you know, empathy in the work, but can you talk about if that was an explicit decision and kind of what role um, you see empathy playing in both the creation of, this app and then just kind of how your work has continued with it? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, it's, um, I feel like it's just key to what we do. Um, I think that we live or die by the user experience and it really has to fit the reality of what it is to be a parent in, you know, today. And, um, you know, like most of the, the people uh, in the company are also parents themselves. And so we really, really make it import- an, a very important thing for us whenever we're designing something to make sure that it works for people, given that, you know, they they have so many things going on. And also to really understand that not everybody's situation is the same. In the sleep plans we do, um, like we totally get that there are very different camps of thought around here. Like some people, if you know, any mention of like, you know, crying is like, they they liken it to child abuse, whereas other mm. people, they're like, you know, I just want something a little faster. It's going to be better for my mental health, which makes me a better parent. And so we work with whatever the parent is coming from. Like, we don't feel like it's our job to change somebody's mind about that. And, be, and if we suggest something that, you know, maybe it's scientifically valid, um, if it's not something the parent is willing to do, then there's no point in us suggesting it for them because then it just makes them feel bad. There's so many different scenarios that we've come across. Like there's a student who um, goes to class and while she's in class, her father looks after her child. And so we created a plan that works with that where, you know, it's not the kind of thing where it's like, oh, you, you know, you have to have the nap in a dark room with white noise at a fixed time in the crib kind of thing. Like, we just work work to seamlessly fit into people's actual lives. Gotcha. Yeah, that flexibility. I really appreciate that because, like you said, um, and you brought up you brought this up before too, kind of the judgment aspect um, that can mm. come with becoming a parent, and um, you know, sometimes looking for advice on this kind of stuff and uh, doesn't end well and doesn't doesn't involve yeah. a lot of empathy. Um, <laughs> And, yeah, that can be really tough. And also you just get different kinds of advice and information from different places. I mean, yeah. when we were – we haven't struggled yeah. too much with sleep yet, but with, with feeding early on, you know, like my mom was saying, oh, you know, add some rice cereal because clearly she she was cluster feeding a lot and 
but then I'm, you know, my doctor's like, oh, we don't do that anymore. Like, that hasn't been recommended <laughs> for quite a while. And so everyone is kind of yeah. juggling those things and then their own intuition. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I ideally, you know, we would help to strengthen the parent's intuition. Um, but but also some, some things there's like there isn't actually an intuition about certain things. Our instincts and intuition are, are good about kind of like sensing whether something might be off or wrong or dangerous or something, but, but like something specific around um, you know, how to get your early riser to sleep in later is not necessarily something that our instincts knows right off the bat. Now it can, if you read something and your instincts would be like, that is not right for us. But it's not necessarily going right. to come up with it on right. your own, and so right if you um, don't have that experience, so, yeah, exactly, exactly, and um, and just by because of like the volume of families that we've worked with, what what would normally be you know rare edge cases, it, there's things that we see commonly enough, and so whenever a new sleep consultant comes to join our team, like we actually end up doing quite a bit of untraining in a sense. Because a lot of people get trained towards, like, what's the average or what's the typical. But, I mean, there's so many non-typical situations and families. Yeah, what's an example of something that maybe isn't the average, but on Huckleberry it is? Yeah. Yeah, so one of the common things that we do some untraining on is the whole, you know, bedtime needs to be between, like, 6 and 7.30 kind of thing. Where, I mean, one, it's just not going to work for a lot of families. They, like, get home at different times. Like, I'm thinking of a, mm-hmm. a certain plan where, uh, you know, the dad works night shifts and really wants to be able to see his child sometimes. And, of course, like, we need to make that work. And so it is doable. Um, also, chronotypes are, um, you know, whether somebody is a earlier versus later kind of chronotypes, so like night owl versus stereotypical early bird that's something that is in your genes from early on so there's definitely kids who naturally are going to be later than others also like you know some kids just have lower sleep needs and and others have higher sleep needs and both are fine yeah you know I was reading all this advice and then my kid was actually fine like she seemed happy even though we weren't doing all the Mm. things you know, the list of not just with sleep, yeah. but just, you know, whatever was being recommended. I I would get emails from all these different places and I'm like, well, but she seems fine and she's healthy and she's growing. So yeah. can I just ignore <laughs> some of this stuff? Like, is that allowed? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I feel like it comes back to the whole, um, uh, like we're all, when a child is born, a parent is born too. And, and so you're kind of wondering, like, am I doing it right? And so when you get too much other advice, then it can throw you for a loop, wondering whether you are actually doing the right thing. And so exactly. there is this big balance for us where people want to know what's normal, and they're going to look for that information from somewhere. And so like, it's good for us to provide some of that, but also to make sure that you know, they don't get discouraged if their child is different. Sleep is just intrinsically variable from day to day also. Like we don't... we. We don't encourage people to like look at one day and be like, oh no, you know, we got less sleep than usual. It just averages out over the week generally. 
did you make those decisions about like intentionally not including that like based on sort of trial and error with what people seem to need or was that based on like pediatrician input and research and things like that? The thing with the uh, like the AAP like guidance on what's a normal amount of sleep is very very broad and so it's it's mm. so broad that it's unhelpful. It's like 12 to 18 hours. <laughs> like okay, well um, that's a little too broad. We have it so like you can look up that information in the articles, but we don't present that to you on a regular basis in your app. Um, and, and you keep mentioning people, you know, like families or folks that, like individuals that use the app. And so I was hoping you could clarify a little bit, like, I imagine some level of it is an algorithm, but is some level of it also, mm. you know, there are real people kind of connecting with users. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so we have um, over 1.2 million users now. And um, and so some of the things we do need to be very scalable, uh, whereas other things uh, we want to make sure that we're putting the premium personal touch on there. And so the sweet spot, um, that's very scalable algorithmic that um, that people use you know, on a regular basis. But when people want some more uh, deeper help, then they can get the sleep plan. And then uh, a human sleep consultant is working on that. And then if they have questions, they can email in and then the sleep consultant will uh, respond to those questions. Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. We only have a couple more minutes, but I wanted to make sure to ask you two quick questions. So, um, one question I ask everyone is to tell me about a time that you have noticed tech facilitating empathy. Um, and it can be, it could be related to Huckleberry, but maybe because we've spent a lot of time on that, maybe in some other area of the tech world or using an app or something, where have you noticed empathy? Yeah, um, maybe a little bit too obvious, but I, I think it really has been eye-opening to me um, in being able to empathize with a, a broader audience. But just like being part of different um, Facebook communities, like I purposely will join ones where I don't necessarily 100% identify with, but I want to know like where they're coming from. Mm. And so I'll, I'll just join as a lurker <laughs> um, and just to see like, how people are thinking about things, what's going on in their regular lives. You know, just getting different perspectives, I think, is really important in, in leading Huckleberry as well and serving the people that we serve so that it's not just our own bubble and world that I'm thinking about. Yeah, definitely always recommend getting outside of the bubble for empathy. Yeah. Um, the last question I ask everybody is, how you feel about the future of empathy and technology. I mean, I think I kind of take it for granted that everybody I talk to sort of understands and accepts that technology, especially social tech, is not like the most conducive place for empathy, but that the people I talk to mm. here are trying to to fix that for the future. Mm. And so I'm curious just how you feel about how do things look 10, 15 years down the road in that arena? Yeah, I think, um, so I, I feel like empathy can take a couple of forms. One is to make us humans more empathetic, but also I think a lot of people think about empathy and tech in making the tech more empathetic to the individual situation. 
And so for the latter, I think that that is going to be like that's going to be table stakes. Now everybody expects things to be on demand. Um, It's just going to be that times 10. Uh, And so the tech will be more empathetic to us as humans. But as far as making humans more empathetic, I I feel like that has to be played out. (laughs) I certainly hope so. Um, And I think just, you know, human nature will take the bigger part versus tech really changing our nature. Yeah, it's going to have to play out and we will see (laughs) what happens. But um, part of my goal is to just get people keep talking about it in, in relation to tech because it has such play such a big role in our lives, as you said. Um, well, thank you again for, for joining us and for answering these questions, having this discussion. Honestly, you know, the fact that we're even having this conversation is, I think, a result of some empathy in tech at work. So I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Um, and where can people <laughs> find you if they want to if they want to know more about your work? Yeah, um, they can email me, jessica at huckleberry-labs.com. Um, they can find me on LinkedIn. I would I would love for people to get in touch. This is an area that is really important to us and our team. So I'm so glad that you had me talk, Caitlin. All right. Well, thank you again. Um, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the Future of Feeling podcast. As a reminder, this is a limited series right now, and I am the sole producer. I'd love to keep making it, and you can help by following on Spotify and sharing with a friend or two. You can also send feedback, questions, and guest suggestions by heading to CaitlinUgalik.com. That's K-A-I-T-L-I-N-U-G-O-L-I-K.com, and click the email me button. 